Land. This is your host of Psych and Sales, David Weiss, and I'm joined as usual by my amazing co-host, Dr. Aaron Weiss. You want to say hi, honey? Hi, everyone. And on this episode of Psych and Sales, we have Darcy Smythe. Now, Darcy is the co-creator of the sales game, friend of mine. We uh, met uh, a few moons ago uh, doing um, shoeies, which he may or may not explain, um, in uh, the fantastic uh, state of Texas, city of Austin, during last year's Sales Success Summit. So, Darcy, uh, always good to talk to you. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think that shoeies have a major impact on people's mental health, uh, and so it's probably a, a wise topic to kick the show off with. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Uh, we did that that summit that we met at. Uh, obviously, we've just completed now the virtual edition of that that's a year later. Man, what has happened in those 12 months since we first met and the connections we've all created and the community that has, you know, come to the surface has just been one that is a pleasure to be a part of, man, I must say. It, dude, it's been it's been awesome. It's been great getting to know you, um, Steve, uh, you know, to your point, all the friends that we've made from it. Um, and, you know, a lot of... Um, a lot's happened <laughs> over the last 12 months. So, um, yeah, let's, let's talk about you, like sales game. What, what is it? Help people understand what that is. Um, and then yeah. let's, let's go from there. Yeah, totally. I think that the, uh, the best way to understand the sales game and even how it ties into the topic of this, uh, podcast is to understand a bit of the backstory. So, Originally, I was one of these lucky people that knew exactly what it is they wanted to do from the youngest of ages. When I was 10 years old, I watched a BBC documentary. Do you guys know what BBC is? Is that a thing to you? Yep, BBC. So there you go. That's it. Yeah. So a lot of that gets broadcast to Australia. All the David Attenborough stuff and all of this is all BBC related. But there was a BBC documentary on the brain that I was watching when I was 10 years old and it showed two neurons in the brain uh, connect with each other and start communicating with each other almost invisibly over a gap, which I would then go on to study and learn is called a synapse or a synaptic cleft. And essentially these two neurons would talk to each other, but not necessarily need to connect. And that gap right there is the very reason anything happens in the brain. Like that's how all communication happens. That's the channel that it occurs over. And to me, even as a 10 year old, I was like that is the single coolest thing anyone could ever see in their entire lives with their own two eyes, right? I thought that's just so fascinating. From that second forward, something clicked, ironically in my own brain, something clicked for me where I was like, I need to know everything there is to, there is to know about that organ, about that thing between our ears, because that just seems to be where, where the party is. That's, that's where everyone's hanging out that is having the best time. I got to know what's happening inside there. And so, as I said, I was very lucky going through high school, um, studied psychology at university, um, always wanted to go on to do sports psychology was what I was originally interested in. Um, but then just sort of started to understand more of the business world and how all of that operated. And that fascinated me. And essentially, of course, there are many people, Aaron, you would know this, there are many people running around with a psychology degree and nothing to do with it, mm-hmm. right? But they're... Nice. But, Yep. There you go. We got, we got, we got our host. All right. 
I, I've forgotten everything I learned, but somehow I still use it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Uh, so I thought, well, I don't want to be one of those people. I am, I'm interested in, um, in wealth generation, in business growth. That also fascinated me as well, given my family history in that sort of realm. Um, and so I decided to take everything that I knew and apply it to the field of sales and, and essentially sales psychology. Cause I've always had a knack for selling. I've always had a knack for relationships. Some, it just comes naturally to some people. Computers don't come naturally to me, but people do. I love hanging around people. It's, it's a pleasure of mine. And I love getting, I'm curious about other people. So sales came naturally. And then I thought, well, how about if I start training people on the psychology of sales, the psychology of how people make decisions, the psychology of what draws people to a yes and draws people to a no. And Aaron, as I'm sure you'd be well aware, the, the answer to that is far more irrational than rational. Um, yeah. The way we make buying decisions makes far less sense than it does make sense unless you know what you're looking for, unless you know the triggers that are actually being pulled in what causes people to buy or not buy. So it fascinates me. And it's a field that I think what fascinates me about it is same thing that fascinates me about playing golf, which is you never arrive. You'll never you'll never get there. You'll never be, okay, I'm officially now perfect at this. You'll, there is always something more to understand. We're always learning more about the brain. And in fact, I believe the point of our evolution of what we're at in learning about the brain is so minimal compared to the running track that we've got to run on. We're like 10 meters into a one kilometer dash. You know what I mean? Like there is a lot to learn. And so that's essentially my psychological background. I've paired that with Steve and his all background. He's got a whole story around this, around strategy. And so psychology and strategy is where the sales game blends and meets and marries. Um, And it's essentially an experiential learning sales program um, that teaches people how to sell through the use of a very profound, very fun, very engaging, and very, shall we say, revealing game. That's awesome, man. And I I think the audience, and one of the things I heard you say is, People buy irrationally unless you know the triggers. And then it's the concept of kind of knowing what to look for. Can you, can you unpack that just a little bit more for us? I think there's some meat there then and an interest. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I, there are many different um, ideologies when it comes to understanding sales psychology. I have my own, all I can do is um, run you through my own that I have seen work and I've trained to, thousands of salespeople and they've used it to work. I'm sure there are other ways you can plug into this, but essentially the the main core of what I like to teach people is that sales essentially are made through the solving of problems. Sure. And I'm, and that's a pretty obvious and pretty simple on the surface level um, because you can have surface level problems that you're aiming to solve, but ultimately people only have a problem based on what they make it mean about them as an individual. So yes, there's problems on the surface level, i.e. we need a, we need a hole in the wall to hang this picture frame. Um, but there's also psychological holes or psychological problems that exist or arise in people when they don't, when they're facing a problem in the real world, in the actual physical, tangible world. And so understanding that that gap between where people currently are in their state of being and where they want to be. That's very intangible, but understanding how to sell to that means you're able to sell people, sell to people on probably more of an unconscious level than a fully conscious, uh, tangible one. 
Cool. And so, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that reminds me a lot of what, when I hear you talk about like the questions that you ask people and what would it mean to them to be able to solve this problem that they have, getting to that kind of what's it mean personally level of yeah, personal like, professional learning. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And I, I'll tell you, the the sales game is the most fun way to to discover that for yourself. So, like, mm-hmm. I remember when I uh, got to participate in recently, and my entire strategy with it was, I'm just going to ask, I'm going to show up and ask people lots of questions, and try and figure out where I can maybe help them, and then mm-hmm. offer to help them if they offer me chips. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, nice. this, so you you played the game. I played the game, and it's and it's fantastic. Um, and then I saw other people playing the game in lots of different ways where they were like almost, it was like a form of bribery or, or, you know, Hey, give me your money. <laughs> Save the weight. That's not selling folks. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. there was like, you know, other people that were, you know, getting really creative with, you know, backdoor deals with you to, to make lots of money. I still don't know what the hell happened in those conversations, but somehow that person won and good. That's it. Um, yeah. So yeah. very fun, very cool game. So it's an yeah, but, yeah. like a board game, or it's a, it's a game with chips. It's I'll, I'll let. I mean, you're looking at me. I'll let. I'll let Darcy. Yeah, it's, it's more right. more a game. It's a game. Uh, well, with chips. Originally, when we played the in person event, we actually had like poker chips. Um, but in the virtual edition that we've run thanks to COVID. Um, and I, I mean that sincerely, like thank you to COVID for helping us create this virtual edition of it. Cause it might not have help, happened otherwise. Um, but uh, essentially it's a game where everyone starts with 20 chips and how you transfer chips between each other is completely up to you. And so the, the slather is completely open and it's very vague and very broad for deliberately for a reason. And so what it essentially states is that the way you play this game tells you a lot about the defaults of the way that you'll play life. How do you behave when you're not given any instruction on how to? Um, And so that sort of shows people a lot about who they are. Some people are like David. They're like, I'm going to go create value for people. How I create that value is by asking questions and discovering what's valuable to them. Some people steal. Some people run immediately to luck. So they'll say, I'll play you in rock, paper, scissors for chips. Again, no right or wrong. Simply tells you a lot about what your defaults are. Um, Some of the more challenging ones have been when companies have uh, resorted to extortion of each other, i.e. I'm going to stand here in front of the toilets and you have to pay me a chip anytime you want to go. Otherwise, I'm not getting out of the way. Again, no right or wrong. Some people have their judgments on things like that, but it just, it does. It shows you a company culture on a platter. Um, And sometimes that's not always easy to see. It is. Say again. Like a projective measure. It's a projective test of one hundred percent sales or, or interactions with other people. That's that's really cool. Very great. I love that 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 term, projective measure. That's that's great. I'm stealing that. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> so so love the sales game. Love what it shows about folks. Um, talk to talk to us a little bit about kind of your your story as well. I feel like you're you're on the show for a reason. Um, there's definitely mm. things that. I'm sure, you know, led to the creation of or just your own personal journey through, you know, mental health and psychology and discovery and sales. Um, you know, what are what are some things that, you know, you've been you've been working on or seen out there, struggled with um, that, that we can you know, chat on and, and help? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I was um, I started out my own sales training 
business. This is before I had met Steve. I met Steve through it, um, maybe a couple of years into it, but originally I started my own um, and was just working one-to-one mentoring with clients and also running live events and training a lot of the methodologies that I'd come to create. And I had an absolute ball. Like I had so much fun. I was so lucky to be able to run a business at the age of probably, well, at that stage I was 22, 23, uh, I think when I started it. And I was so fortunate to be running a business in a time where you could run it from anywhere. You know, like I was traveling overseas just by myself in my backpack, connecting with clients just through this magical thing called the internet traveling the world, having a blast, just I was as free as it got. And it was so much fun. I, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Um, I got to create content on the thing that I'm so passionate about, which was the brain, got to connect with people and talk about the brain all day, got to grow their business numbers all day, had an absolute blast. And all the while, my own mother, uh, she was, uh, Sue was her name. She was struggling with her own mental health um, challenges. Uh, her thing was anxiety, like through the roof to the point where she couldn't really leave the house. There wasn't really much more she could do other than have a coffee and a cigarette and a little bit of toast. And, you know, that was it. She really was really struggling to the point where there'd be many days where I'd connect with her and, you know, she'd just, just be gray. You know, those people who are like, you're like, you're, you're here physically, but you are not here mentally or spiritually. Like you've checked out and it's only a matter of time now. Um, which is weird because, you know, when you see people who are unwell and this, I think helps to break the stigma of it. I know this is perfect. What this podcast is for is when you see someone who's dying of cancer or old age or anything like this, you can look at them and everyone can agree like, Hey, not long to go now is there. But a lot of the times with mental health, it's so invisible that that conversation doesn't really happen. But with mum, it was obvious. Mum was so unwell that she might as well have had cancer, but it was just, you know, all in her mind, you know, it was like, well, there's not long to go now here. Is there like, you can just sense the day is coming where she'll succeed at doing what she's probably wanted to do for a while now. And, uh, I remember I was, um, in a place called North Stradbroke Island. And I was actually writing a book there and I had got, I picked up my phone and had, you know, six missed calls from my sister and five from my brother and a text message saying, call me, call me. And I picked up the phone and I was like, well, this is it. This is, this is the, it's like one of those times every time the phone rang, um, you were thinking, oh, is this going to be, what are you about to tell me? And this was when it finally happened. And I received the call. I called my brother and he said, yeah, mum's, you know, she's taken her own life and, you know, she's gone. Um, and that was, I mean, God, I, I can't put into words how difficult that was to experience. What was really tough about it was because I was on North Stradbroke Island, I had to basically stay on the island that night um, after I'd just learned that mum had died and then had to get a, a ferry across from an, for an hour back onto the mainland near Brisbane, had to drive from there to Brisbane Airport, had to uh, get a flight from Brisbane back to Melbourne uh, and then drive from Melbourne back to Warrnambool where I'm originally from. And all the while, all I could do was just stare at whatever seat was in front of me the entire time and just bawled my eyes out. I I can't tell you how sorry now looking back on it, I've felt for the people who were sitting next to me on the plane next to this blubbering mess. They were screaming like, what is this kid going through? Like, what is, what has happened to this guy? You know? But anyway, that was all part of the story. But from there, um, I, I, I suppose that my journey kicks in when the grief kicks in um, because for the first year 
And I think this is something that a lot of salespeople will resonate with. For the first year, I threw myself into whatever I could throw myself into that would distract me. And that for me was work. That was go make more sales, go just build the business. Just, do, you know, I told myself, just do what mum, do what mum would have wanted you to do. Just keep doing you, Das, keep building, you know, keep being successful. And so I did. And I must say, I spoke with someone, a friend of mine who had lost his mum about four years before. And he, he said something that really clicked with me. He said, Das, grief doesn't happen in the first year. The first year is not shock with a death like that of your mother. That's not grief. That's just you trying to keep your head above water without even realizing it. Uh, he said, grief kicks in after that year is over when the rubber actually hits the road. Life returns to some form of normality, but it's, it's like you're missing your left arm and you never even realized it. Does this make sense? And so that was the journey for me. That first year I was okay. And then once it all caught up with me, not only did I have the grief to face and I still face that every day. I think I'll face it every day for the rest of my life. Ultimately, not only do I have the grief to face, but I also had to face the fact that now I'd built a very, very, very successful business and I was earning a lot of money doing it. And I had to take care of a lot of people through it, but I did it whilst I was holding my breath with floaties on. Uh, do you guys have floaties in America? That's a term yeah. you use. Like, you put it, yeah, yeah. Holding my, yeah, great. Holding my breath with floaties on. And now that's it. I had then let go of the breath because all of the, grief had like gone like, you got to deal with this now. And someone had popped the floaties. So I was sinking to the bottom, but then had a business to run at the same time. And I remember there was a moment where I was with my girlfriend, Katie at the time. And, uh, uh, we were driving in the car. We, I had just finished a week of work and I had just hit a personal record in the business. Um, as, as something like a $30,000 month, which for me at the time being, well, I was 26 or something like that, 20, whatever. Yeah. That's a, that's a good chunk of, good chunk of money. I'm the only person running the business. So I'm a sole trader. I didn't have any staff. Like that's all great money. You know what I mean? And I should have been absolutely stoked to have hit that target. But I remember hitting it, like ticking off the box of, you know, just putting away the, saving the files to my computer, sort of officiating the sale, if you will, being like, wow. I hit that target. I can't believe it. And then that voice creeps in and I thought, thought it kind of would have felt a little bit better than this. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, it actually isn't all that fulfilling if I'm to be honest. Anyway, we get in the car, we're driving out to her place. We get in, in like an Uber and I'm staring at the back of the seat in the Uber and, and something just hit me. Just this massive wave of panic and of anxiety and of just absolute dread and fear. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And from that moment on, I had officially entered, I believe what, it, what I now realize was burnout. Um, and Dave, you and I have spoken about this before. It's like, it's an experience that once you have it, you will never, ever, ever want to go back there. And I believe that uh, I'm of this, I have this sick belief that everyone should go through burnout once to know never to go back there again. Do you know what I mean? Like, but maybe it would happen again, but either way you need that sort of, you need to know where the line is. And I certainly learned where my line was that day um, and learned where that line was as I recovered from that burnout journey and dealt with the grief as well throughout it all, probably over the last, you know, two and a half to three years. Um, 
has that journey has been. And I would like to say now, especially over say the last probably six months, you know, that has stabilized and you still have your days and even your weeks where you go a bit down, but you always know that you're going to come up again and that's sales and that's business and all that. It's much more under control now, but I tell you what, at the time going through it, it was, it was nothing short of a nightmare, nothing short of a nightmare. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing the story. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot here for people to kind of, you know, latch onto from my mind. So, so first and foremost, um, this whole concept of, you know, stuffing things down when bad things happen. Uh, I think you're spot on that first year to two years. Um, it, it's so purposeful, the avoidance that, uh, you almost can appear fine, but it's when you think you've gotten past it. And then you don't need to be as intentional or purposeful about the avoidance that then it kind of is like, Oh no, I'm still fucking here. <laughs> you, you just forgot to, you just forgot to stuff it down. Um, and, and, and that's where then it comes up. So I think the, the yeah. one lesson there for folks is like, don't forget to keep stuffing. Don't either, either, either <laughs> never stop yeah. stuffing it down. Yes. Or, yes. Or, or just know that you're eventually going to have to deal with that shit. And it may be better to deal with it sooner rather than later. Um, yeah. So that's one. Um, and then the, the, cause it, cause it will find you and will haunt you. It's like a fucking, it's a ghost. It's, not it's a, there. Deal with it. Yeah. And then the other one is um, you, you can't outwork you, you can only outwork problems for so long and eventually life will catch up to you. And one really, really good way to know it is that gut check that you gave yourself where you're like, things are great and they, sh- I should be feeling better than I am. Mm. Why am I not? Mm. And that question to yourself probably, you know, that, that's that one question probably opened up a, a lot because you know, when, when things are good and when things are going well and you still don't feel better, that means there is definitely underlying, you know, things that are, that are going on. So it's, it's a, it's a nice reminder for folks to, to, for that self-realization to kind of check themselves and say, you know, maybe I haven't dealt with this or maybe there are other things because this should feel better than it does. It's well said, Dave. And I think that's one thing I ultimately learned a lot of was that these moments, I used to see them as a problem to solve. I used to see like, if you're not feeling great when you really should, it's like, now I've got to go about solving that problem. It's actually not necessarily true. Really, it's just an indicator. That's all it is. It's just your body and your mind just going, hey, just so you know, you're a bit off track. You don't need to solve me. In fact, if you try and solve me as the problem, I can't indicate to you anymore. Right. So that's just going to make it worse, you know? So, so it's almost like having, you know, stabbing yourself in the foot with a knife and then trying to solve the problem of getting rid of all the, all the pain in the world. And then knives will just stab through you wherever they go and you never notice it. You know, it's like the pain is there for a reason. It's an indicator. Um, and I certainly learned that. That took me a while to learn that one, but to almost become thankful for the pain, thankful for the fear, thank, thankful for the, those challenging, challenging dark times because it's just, it's just evidence that your car is veered off the road and you're driving through a very big dust storm and in order to do that, you need to check on the GPS and get yourself back on track. 
right. as opposed to trying to, you know, solve the GPS system. That's a bit silly when you think of it that way. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah, and you just said a couple of things that I think are really important. One, the idea of it being an indicator, which so then you, I guess you guys both said that. What does that mean? What's going on? You also said you're thankful for those emotions. And and I think that's that's really in line with a lot of what I do with people is kind of looking at not just like what is indicating in terms of that something's bothering you, but what's good about that? What, mm. what, what does it show about you? That's good. Like you were missing your mother, right? Do you really want to be okay and not actually be able to deal with that? It shows the, the depth of your love for relationship, her relationship, love, caring, yeah. relationship with her that it would be bothering you so much. Right. It, there's a lot of values that really show through those, those feelings as well that um, I think are really important to acknowledge. That's so well said, Erin. I think that the key with it all is to ask yourself who's doing the judging here. Like when you have a, an emotion that comes up that you dub as painful or as negative, I'm always fascinated by when people term emotions as negative or positive. The emotions don't dub themselves that way. They're just emotion. That they, they don't have any meaning. We, we, bad, but that doesn't make them positive. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like our, our egoic nature thinks it gives us the right to decide what emotions should be this this humaniness that you know has the ultimate controller um which we've all got in us but um i'm always curious who's judging these emotions as 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 negative or positive because in judging them you essentially categorize them and in 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 categorizing them what you wind up with is a categorization of yourself as positive or negative if you judge a negative if you are judged as an emotion as negative and you also believe you're the emotion then you got trouble because if you're feeling bad then you are bad yep. and then you'll feel bad for being bad and then you're on a sure. hamster wheel that yep. there you go you can't there feel you better go. because if you feel bad that means you're bad so exactly out at that point yeah exactly yeah and so that's been a huge um huge part of my own journey has been especially recently it has helped so much is this idea of just simple meditation mm. and simply being the observer of thoughts, the observer of emotions and um, having less attachment to them and simply allowing my body and my mind to be a vehicle for the emotions to pass through, just like they're a visitor. They might pay rent, but they certainly don't need to start paying a mortgage in your house, you know, in in your being. Mm -hmm. And so that has been so super helpful is just to watch the emotions come up. And as long as, I mean, the only reason I wouldn't do that is if I'm judging the thoughts and emotions as they come up as either negative or positive. If I remain judgment-free, then whatever comes up is simply what's coming up and that's completely okay. That's actually probably completely normal. You know what I mean? It's We get in our own way when it comes to a lot of this emotional pain stuff is what I've learned, but it's taken me three or four very painful years to learn that, I must say. Very painful, very attached years to the pain. Yeah. And, detach, yeah. and, I, and I almost like to like a visual where you're rising above the emotion, not that you are above emotion, but you're rising above it. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is when you start feeling some way, you stop and instead of reacting, you question it and you say, Mm -hmm. why am I feeling this way? And, Mm -hmm. And so most people have emotion react to emotion and that could be good, bad. I mean, a lot can happen from that. But if you kind of just take a step and say, before I react, I'm, hold on, I'm feeling a certain way. 
why am I feeling that way? What can I do about it? That to me is this like concept of kind of trying to like take yourself out of your body, rise a little bit above the emotion, inspect what's going on, ask yourself some questions and then make conscious decisions about what to do about it. I used to not, I used to, sorry, go on, go on, Aaron, go on. I was going to say, I used to not do that, Dave, because I had in my mind, I was like, but is that just repressing the emotion? I said this to my mentor the other day. He's like, no, it does. It's the complete opposite. In fact, attaching to it and riding it like a raging bull is actually repressing it. Cause if you're riding it, you've got a hold of it and you're trying to control it. He's like, in actual fact, that rising above and just simply seeing it and questioning it and being non-attached to it is the opposite of repression. That's, that's the healthy way to approach it. And I was like, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to see it. A very, very helpful way to see it. A way that allows you to see it whilst just breathing through it, you know, without being dominated by it. And by the way, I'm not saying that's easy. Nope. Like, oh yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Folks, I, I still fail at this. Trust me. I'm a six year old. I fail daily at that. <laughs> but I have been more conscious about it over the last year or so. I've realized the things that are coming at me and that I'm, I need to choose how I respond to them. And just taking a, is that old saying like, take, before you respond, take like, you know, count to 10. Mm. Good, that's good fucking advice. So you should probably do that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Think about what's coming at you and like take a deep breath, examine it, examine how you, what you're planning on doing around that thing and then make some you know choices about it. Yeah. Nice. I think that, one of the things that can, um, oh, sorry, Erin, I've cut you off again. <laughs> Actually, no, you go. Cause I was about to go off track. You go, 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 go. Uh, I was going to say, um, labeling the feeling like David said, I'm feeling this way. So even just calling it a feeling. So instead of saying I'm sad, just even saying mm. I'm feeling sad and lab- one labeling what it is, not like I feel bad, but I'm feeling this. So mm that can actually create some of that space too. Now it's not me, it's it's a feeling. Same thing with thoughts. I'm thinking this as mm. opposed to that thought being a, a, treated as a fact. It kind of helps to create that separation from, from you as a person or your ego to label our thoughts and feelings as such. Yeah. Well said, well said. Just creating that fence that you've got to jump between the two allows you to see it more objectively. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's it. Um, was this a, an experience that you had, Dave, at all? You know, I, I know you've you've told the story. I'm sure podcast listeners have heard to this point a number of times, perhaps about your story. But was it a moment that it all came on like a panic attack, or did it grow gradually, or what was it for you? So, are you, like when I was feeling burnt out. Yeah. Um, it was. I don't think, and and Aaron, you helped me a lot through this. I don't think it was ever a panic attack. I think it was this like deep feeling of anger, frustration, and inability to do anything else. Mm. Um, That's kind of how I describe it. What, what, I mean, you, you helped me through some of those. What do you think? I'm trying to remember at what point it, it turns to burnout for you because I know it started with the boss situation and then it was a lot of kind of hopelessness and hopelessness around that. And then it turned to, um, anger, resentment. Right. But then you went into like doing other things to, I guess it was your way of trying to outrun it, but it created some good connections and things for you as well. Yeah. And, 
then where in there did the actual burnout part happen? It was when I joined Outreach. That's what I thought, because you had yeah, built up yeah. all of these things that you were doing that were basically like a full-time job. I essentially a 40-hour yes. side hustle while still working at ADP doing and oh, killing it, too. Man. But I, I was working like 60 hours a week, and I just had pivoted a lot of my life. But then when I joined... that's where you could get satisfaction. Because that's where I get satisfaction. But then when I joined mm-hmm. Outreach it immediately shifted back where I now have a 40 hour work week, actually really 50, 60 starting a new job and this 40 hour side hustle. So like I, I literally was working like, I don't know, 13, 14 hour days every single day. And that, mm-hmm. it just, it just got to a point where I was like, I, I, I started getting mad at, at all, at everybody in the side hustle. Things just started falling through the cracks. I started working until like 11, 12 o'clock at night and then waking up at like seven, eight o'clock in the morning to get started. And I was just, I was tired. I was, I was literally angry. I was frustrated with everyone. I was just, I just felt fucking miserable. And I was yes, like, yes. someone was like, Hey, can you do this thing? I'd be like, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> but I just need you to get me a glass of water. No, fuck you. No water for you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm growing my hair and I'm going home. <laughs> There's literally nothing else I'm willing to do right now. Um, and that's kind of when I, when I was like, shit, I need to, I need to cut way out of my life. And, and I did. Yes. So. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Cool, man. Um, dude, this is, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I, I love talking about mental health. I feel like, uh, it's being talked about more and more in the sales community. And I'm not saying we need to all shout from the rooftops, all of our deepest, darkest secrets and ask everyone in the world for help. But I do feel like to your point, we can't stuff things forever. We need to find people to talk to. Why do you think in our profession, folks aren't more open about, you know, I don't know, being human? And because because <laughs> I think I have I think I have a very very direct answer for this, yeah. like a direct correlative answer. Happy to be wrong, but as you've asked the question, this is the first thing that comes up. And I haven't thought about this before, but this is just what clicked. Salespeople are essentially paid for their knowledge. Mm. They're, they're they're they are paid for what they know and what they can find out. Mm-hmm. Those two processes happen in the brain and so does mental health. Mm. And so I think that if in sales specifically, if you have a weakness of mind, it's so linked or even unconsciously, whether people are aware of it or not, it is so linked with a weakness of professional prowess. Mm. Um, And I think that that's what makes it a really tough industry to hide it in. I mean, What's the one industry off the top of your head? What's the one industry that's more than happy to talk about mental health, more than happy to talk about struggles and challenges? Do you have, do you have an idea? What comes to mind first? I actually have no idea. Mental health? Yeah, just, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's it. I was going to say artists. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say um, artists, musicians and painters and all of this. I mean, mental health, almost like mental challenge and struggle is almost not celebrate. It's part of the community. Yeah. There you go. That's it. That's it. So most are the best. <laughs> there you go. And so they're happy to talk about it because it helps them. Yeah. It helps them produce their work in some, in many respects, in, in many, um, many artists, that's the case. And they they are very open and honest about the story that goes along with the struggle behind this art piece or this piece of music or this whatever. And we celebrate it with them. We celebrate it for them. You know, we almost see them as heroes for it. You know what I mean? I and so I think in sales, it's the opposite. 
Yeah. That's a great answer. I hadn't thought of that. I think that that's the first time we've heard that one, but it makes a lot of sense. Mm. And, and as you were saying that too, it almost, it makes me think too with artists. I wonder if that's something that gets in the way of actually helping their mental health because it's, it's such a helpful They connect thing so deeply to, to it. To it. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh-huh. yeah, but that's a whole other su- subject. That's a really. They should stuff more things out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd have better art. We'd have way better art. <laughs> yeah, so way more of a kind of fusion with the idea of having to be mentally strong because if I'm not mentally strong, then that must mean I'm not capable or good at my job. Yeah, that's it. Now the interesting thing that goes alongside it as well. What a what a cool little can of worms we've opened here. But um, the cool thing that goes alongside it as well is artists are you know, notoriously poor, that, that's a, another badge of honour that is worn by the art community is that typically if you're an artist, you don't make near as much money as a business person. I mean, that's a... Unless you're a really so that, actor, but yeah, like... Yeah, exactly, exactly. But the large yeah. majority, yeah, the large majority don't do it for the money. Um, and it's almost like actually now that I'm saying it, I said it's sales, but ultimately it's like, it's almost like there's a correlation between financial stability and growth and a stable mind that goes with it in a lot of cases. Anyway, maybe that's something to explore, but I don't really have an answer on that one, but it is. It's a correlation that I have noticed is that the mind of salespeople is so linked to their professional identity um, that to have that seen as anything other than stable and perfect is damaging to a career. So it can be safer to hide it. And I, I love the perspective. And again, I, I don't recommend shouting from the rooftops. You need to find safe spaces for these things. But what we do know is that at some point in time in your professional career, you will not be able to outwork your problems. And yeah. if you have like strengthening a muscle and strengthening everything else that you do to be strong in your career, if you don't strengthen your mental health muscle through um, working on things, meditation, talking with people, you know, wh- whatever healthy outlets you need to do to kind of, you know, decompress and deal with how you're feeling, it will eventually catch up to you and mm-hmm. it will have a profound negative impact um, that you probably won't be able to escape until you deal with it. So it's probably better you deal with it, you know, sooner rather than later. Um, so I'm glad we're talking about it, but that's just kind of my soapbox two cents on that. Nice. Love that, man. Well said. Well, and one more thing, there's a difference between talking about that you're struggling with mental health and working on it, falling apart. Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's different ways of, of sharing. So, you know, letting people know what's going on. I think people share a lot of very personal things like Darcy just did on this show, but you know, you're, you're not doing it in an unhealthy detrimental kind of a way. So, um, I think that that's a factor as well as kind of how you're sharing it can can play a role as well. Yep. Awesome, man. Well, it's always great having a conversation with you. Where where can people find you? Where can they find Darcy? Where can they find the sales game? You know, yeah. Help people yeah, get in touch. Love it. Yeah. LinkedIn's probably best. LinkedIn is best. Just check out Darcy J. Smythe on LinkedIn. S-M-Y-T-H uh, is the spelling of that. Um, if the sales game, if you're looking to find the sales game, don't worry about that. The sales game will find you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how that will work. But I, I want to take this opportunity to say um, 
thank you to you guys for doing this, for creating this podcast and, and putting this out to the world because it is such a important discussion right now. It's a really important discussion globally, but it's a super important discussion in the sales world specifically. And that's what you guys are targeting and it's super needed. And if you guys have three listeners to this podcast, it'll be three of the most valuable listeners to any podcast out there. So well done and, and congrats on all of this. And again, on behalf of all salespeople, thank you. Much love. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, audience, reach out to Darcy. Uh, he is great for the show. By the way, he's got his own podcast as well. Um, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher it. Uh, sales of love. Sales. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's great. The pursuit of love. Pursuit of love. The pursuit of love. Which we 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 interview people who are crazy enough to uh, to pursue the thing they love as a form of uh, making their crust. Um, so we interview a whole lot of entrepreneurs, crazy people, um, artists, all of that. Yeah, it's a great, great, great podcast. You'll love it. So check out Darcy, check out Pursuit of Love, check out Sales Game, um, follow him. Good fan of the show. Awesome dude. So Darcy, thanks for being on. Yeah, appreciate thank you. you. Thank you very much. Guys. I really appreciate you both. Um, listeners, as always, um, we're here to help. Our guests are here to help. If you're struggling with anything, uh, don't go out alone.